Speaking Logically is brought to you by ETF Logic, the leading provider of analytics and portfolio analysis tools for financial advisors. No information within this should be considered trading or investment advice. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we welcome to the podcast Jonathan Shellen, Chief Operating Officer at CraneShares, as well as Anthony Sassine, Senior Investment Strategist there. We have a lot to talk about, including CraneShares' mission to capture China exposure in your portfolio. We'll also talk about their suite of ETF models and how you can invest in them, as well as interesting China themes playing out right now. So let's dive right into it. Jonathan, can you give us a little introduction about CraneShares? Thanks so much. Thanks for having us on today. It's really great to be with you. I'd love to provide some background on CraneShares. It's really a phenomenal story. Some of your listeners may know that we're now a firm that manages about $9 billion in assets across 30 ETFs and are focused on China. But I think it's interesting to share a little bit about how the firm got started. And the firm was founded by Jonathan Crane, who's our CEO. And he's got a really interesting background in the sense that after he graduated from business school, he went to China and as an entrepreneur founded a company that focused on media, entertainment, sporting events in China. And he built it into a significant company across many cities, hundreds of employees, and actually was a participant in Beijing Olympics and helped to do sponsorship, promotion, ticketing for the Beijing Olympics. And through that process, saw amazing things happening in China. This was like the early 2000s. He saw wealth building rapidly in the middle class. He saw meaningful urbanization occurring. And he also saw rapid adoption of technology. So when he came back to the States and started thinking about ways to have investment exposure to those opportunities and asked around, he was told, well, really, there's no way that you can get meaningful exposure to new China, as they say. And there's nothing an entrepreneur loves to hear more than something doesn't exist. And he immediately set out to launch crane shares by providing a real focus on China and important themes that are emerging there but also recognizing the need for transparency and cost effectiveness. So he chose to launch Crane Shares as an ETF company, as opposed to, say, a traditional asset management firm. I see. Well, how would you describe your guiding philosophy? So obviously, China as an emerging market economy plays an important role in people's portfolios or China as an asset class. How do you form that thought? And that's what's really interesting here is over this time, so we've been building crane shares since 2013. So it's an eight-year young company, but we've always maintained a philosophy that you really have to think about China separately. Right now, many investors, when you ask them, how do you invest in China? They'll say, well, it's part of my emerging market allocation. So they don't treat it separately from anything else. They just have it embedded in a broader EM category. But what we've been advocating and what we think is starting to happen now, it's taken some time to get the market there, is that people are starting to recognize that China should be its own distinct asset class. Much like what we saw happening with Japan in the 80s, where Japan started to become separate from Asia broadly. And then now we have categories like 
Asia X Japan and Japan, we expect that as time goes on, institutional and professional investors will increasingly separate China from emerging markets, excluding China, EMX China. And this is happening already for a couple of obvious reasons. One, China's the second largest economy in the world behind the US. China boasts the second largest stock market in the world and the second largest bond market in the world. So even if you knew nothing at all, you would know that you have to have a significant allocation to China as a category. But what's even more compelling is that the characteristics of China as an investment are actually quite different than the rest of emerging markets. And one good example is looking at last year. Last year, China as an asset category was up 33%. And emerging markets, excluding China, were up 13%. That's a 20% difference in a 12-month period. And that's why we think it's really important to segment these things out, to capture a very different return profile, a different risk profile, and meaningful correlation benefits. Let's talk a little more about how do you encapsulate that asset class? So obviously there's ETFs. How do you think about how do people invest in China through grain share products? I'll start off and maybe Anthony can chime in too on the bottle piece, but we really have two distinct ways to do this. One is through our ETF business. As I'd mentioned, a big focus of ours is on China ETFs and Within crane shares, I would say about half of our strategies are what we call thematic. So rather than just focusing on broad-based China, we're actually providing very surgical exposure to significant themes, themes that we think have the ability to meaningfully outperform kind of broad EM or even broad China, themes like internet and e-commerce, healthcare, environment, clean tech. So these are all areas that we think have a lot of runway. And when we say thematic, we don't mean six months, 12 months, 18 months. We're talking about 10 plus years. So these are long-term themes. And we've been getting so many questions about how to implement these themes into portfolios that we've started to just build our own portfolios for people to say, rather than you having to think about how to combine internet and e-commerce with healthcare, let us help you do that. And Anthony has helped us spearhead this effort that we've been focused on now for about two years. Anthony, why don't you tell us more about those models and more of like the portfolio approach to, I guess, weaving those different themes into a cohesive picture? Absolutely. Thank you. And happy to be here. One of the big questions today is how much do I invest in emerging markets and how much do I invest in China? And if I'm looking at emerging markets in China, what are the best areas to be in? As you know, if you've been following the asset classes, there can be a little bit of a divergence between what we call or the market calls the old EM, old China versus new EM, new China. So we're definitely in a transformative world. And if you want to be ahead of the big game, you want to be in the future industries that are kind of shaping the globe today, not just emerging markets in terms of technology and clean tech and healthcare and you name it. And which is really great here that we have a lot of options internally to access all these themes. And each one of these themes have very distinct characteristics, risk and return characteristics. And 
some of them to react to markets differently. So I think it's really great that we're trying to package these different themes to provide investors with an allocation that we believe is a balanced approach, certainly to what's going on in the market today, but also with a long-term view on allocation. So we started working on allocation. We started with a model in the emerging markets guided by the philosophy that China should be its own asset class. We create a model, an emerging dynamic emerging markets model of two different ETFs. One is Emerging Markets X China, which is KMAX ticker. And the second one is Crane Shares China All Growth, which is Call. And the China All Growth includes the full Asia market, not just the 20% inclusion set by the indices or by MSCI, but actually based on the market's market cap. And it's the second biggest market in the world. So it's kind of 40%. So naturally, we think this is a better beta than what we have in the index today by first breaking out China and second, by getting a full exposure to a very underdiscovered and underdeveloped market, which is the Asia market. So from there, we built kind of a tactical overlay based on fundamentals and valuations to kind of capture the current state of the two ETFs in terms of valuation fundamentals, which one is cheaper or more expensive? What are we looking in terms of growth? Which one pays you better dividend? And based on those decisions, we kind of overweight, underweight ex-China or China on a quarterly basis. But we also included some features that are kind of relative to emerging markets. And I think one of the benefits you get with crane shares, it's that we are only specialized in emerging markets in China. You will never see us trying to do a comprehensive model we're going to be mostly focused on these two asset classes. I have an experience of seven, eight years working in emerging markets. Jonathan as well. Jonathan was also CIO at JP Morgan Private Bank and worked with Target Funds at Fidelity. So we're combining this experience in addition to a very deep bench of investment professionals to come up with these allocations. So based on that experience, we know that in emerging markets, valuations can overshoot or undershoot. So we included in that model kind of an opportunistic rebalance as well that can happen inter-quarter if things get to an extreme level. And we also some kind of have some risk management features that are embedded in that model, simple risk management features that are designed to give you a little bit of an edge in a down market, not really full protection, but just a little bit of an edge and kind of a signal that, hey, we may be going into a little bit of a bearish market here and hope to outperform the overall benchmark if we do. So that's the Crane Shares Emerging Markets model. And also we have a suite of China models, of course. We have the China All Growth model, which captures the biggest three themes in China today. China Internet, of course, China Healthcare, and the KBA, the A-Shares market, which I said is very underdiscovered, only 20% inclusion in MSCI. So by just the virtue of raising that inclusion from 20% to 100%, you can expect a lot of flows to go into that market from the passive side. And it will be followed by flows from the active side, because when you look at tracking error, you don't want to deviate too much from the benchmark. So we include these three themes or ETFs, and also we have it in a strategic wrapper where it's rebalanced semi-annually for those who just don't want too much action, too much turnover. And soon we're launching a dynamic version of that where we would have a little more, something very similar to the dynamic emerging markets. In addition to that, we recently launched the China innovation model which actually goes further than the current growth opportunities and capture the 5G and the clean tech and the star market, the new star market that just launched a year ago. Wow, that's a lot of stuff going on. You talked about KBA and 
I just like to kind of dive into that one a little bit. You mentioned that it's A-Share's focus. Maybe for the audience, you could just briefly, could you disambiguate for us? What does A-Share's mean? And maybe the distinction between A-Share's and H-Share's, for example? There are three different distinct Chinese markets. You have the one that we know best here. Most of people here are invested in. It's the ADR market, which includes a lot of the big tech companies. Back in the days, if you're not profitable, you cannot list in China. So many of those companies came to list in the US, like Alibaba and Baidu, the two most famous ones, in addition to a whole list of different companies. And the second market is the Hong Kong market, which is the main one. Before the A-share market was accessible, it was traditional for all these companies to go list on the Hong Kong market, which is globally accessible. But recently, as China started to open up and reform, one of the initiatives that they embarked on is opening up the markets, and one of them is the equity market. So they knew they needed external capital. Reliance on real estate is not enough. The companies within China, they're going to need foreign backing in order for them to grow and achieve the goals they're trying to do. So they started opening up the Asia market slowly. And over the past few years, the indices started including them. And in the passive products, MSCI started in 2017, I believe, with a 5% and then increased that surprisingly a year after to 20%. And now this is the second biggest market in the world after the US. And it's five, six trillion, and it has over, I don't know, thousand companies. If you look at the MSCI EM, 60 or 70% of the companies are Chinese companies. And more than half of that is in the Asian market. So these are companies that people here have never heard of. And we're talking about like very innovative companies that are in mainland China, most of them involved in healthcare, 5G, food and beverage is huge, alcohol is huge, clean tech, EV, solar, you name it. So all these companies, artificial intelligence, are listed in A-shares. In order to access that, you have to go through Stock Connects, but now they're becoming way more accessible. The quotas have been removed. And we expect the indices to start including more and more of the market and the passive products. There's an upcoming announcement for MSCI. We wouldn't be surprised to hear that they may be launching a consultation. I mean, this is a very big and liquid market and investors around the world are looking for a differentiated alpha because naturally, since it's not very accessible, it has lower correlation. So when they launch their consultation, I would expect institutional clients to want to have more access to that market. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think you really need to appreciate what happens when passive indexing increases. And as you mentioned, the MSCI will start to incorporate more and more of China mainland stocks into their index. That means more dollars flowing towards those companies. So really, really compelling story there with KBA. If I could add just one thing to that, it also means that right now, and this is what's interesting, even though we're a passive firm, we're an ETF company, so people say, oh, you're passive, you're tracking an index. But in many cases, we work closely with index providers to construct something that we think is really exceptional and unique in the marketplace. Whether we do that with the index provider or through our model portfolios, we're trying to represent what we think is the right weighting to these different markets. So to your point, when we talk about investing in A-shares, we're not necessarily going to hold just that amount that's captured in the indexes today, whereas they say skating to where the puck is going. So we're going to represent the A-share weights 
more in line with where they represent the market opportunity. And as Anthony pointed out, this is an enormous opportunity and principally accessed right now by 1.3 billion people in China mm-hmm. and some institutional investors. So it's great to see that there are pockets in China that are just so underrepresented and not controversial as an investment strategy. So when we build models or even work closely with index providers to launch a new strategy, we take a really hard look at how things are being represented. And if we can make improvements, we do it. Let's talk more about how you put these different ETFs together through ETF models. I've visited your website a couple of times recently, and I noticed you have a handful of models. Why don't you maybe give us a brief overview of those and then tell us about how how 2020 went, because that was obviously a tumultuous year, especially for EM. Well, one thing, I'll maybe kick off and talk a little bit more about this notion of kind of where our philosophy is in models as well, because interestingly enough, I've been running money for a long time, over 20 years. And even though I spent most of my career in active management, maybe you can call me a recovering active manager at this point, there's a lot of alpha that can be gained in this space, but it's not the way that people have characterized alpha in emerging markets historically. A lot of folks would say historically, oh, emerging markets are inefficient and the best way to extract value is by picking certain stocks, overweight stock A and underweight stock B. And what we're finding is when we look at the universe of active managers within emerging markets, the alpha seems to be going away. There hasn't been as much success recently as there had been historically. So when we talk about alpha, we wonder, are there other ways to produce value in a portfolio beyond picking stocks? And what we found is the answer is yes. You can do it in two ways. You can either do it by dynamically allocating to China and the rest of emerging markets. That could be a source of alpha, a source of value in a portfolio, or you can identify themes that you think will outperform broad emerging markets. And so when we thought about launching this model business, we wanted to have the flexibility to approach it in either of those ways, either strategically, just by having very good long-term weights, but long-term weights that we think are more representative of the market opportunity, like we talked about with A-shares, or having a dynamic framework that allows us more frequently to rebalance from one market to another. And when Anthony kind of describes the models, you'll hear both of those things come through and shine. So it's not the old way of adding value in a quote unquote inefficient market, but we think it's really the most stable and effective way and also transparent way of doing it because there are no secrets for us. When we talk about model weights and model holdings and so on, that information is transparent on a daily basis. Anthony, can you give us a little more insights into those models, maybe like especially the dynamic models, like you know, how do you put them together and how do they rebalance? The first thing we're trying to do here is we're trying to find solutions for advisors. So the goal here is to partner and work on different solutions for their portfolios and their clients. And the one thing we've been advocating for, and I think the whole market is going towards, is what we call the mosaic approach in building client portfolios. So the mosaic approach is more of a combination of different asset classes and different asset managers that specialize in these asset classes. 
and it allows advisors to keep control of client portfolios and also build something more customized with a personal touch. And we aim to help these advisors in the emerging markets and China area. So how do we build those models? So two big steps, as Jonathan mentioned, one is we identify a benchmark that we want to outperform and we seek out to build a strategic allocation that we believe is better or it's an enhanced beta to that benchmark. With the emerging markets, we thought KMAX and Call is a better beta than the actual MSCIM you're getting. With the China all growth model, we thought focusing on internet, A shares, and healthcare would give you a great exposure to the new China while maintaining a balance between onshore and offshore. And that's especially compared to MSCI China. And the same thing with innovation. So the first step is to build that strategic allocation, which is an enhanced beta. And then second step is to do a lot of research. So based on our experience in these markets, as I mentioned, we've been following these markets for a long time. We can understand the way they trade, to understand how investors react to different news, how they've done in different market environments. So we try to incorporate that experience in building a model that would respond to market movements in a favorable way. So we do a lot of research on the key drivers, performance, and risk. And then third step is we build a framework that executes on that research. So kind of an overlay using very simple, widely used valuation signals and fundamental signals such as price to equity, price to book, price to sales, long-term growth, dividend yield. So we combine all these different signals and then we build a framework that actually can execute on that research. And four, we make it investable. We launched it's on different platforms. You can access it through investment technology platforms like the main ones. It's very accessible. And we make it investable through either SMAs or model delivery, and we may be launching some ETFs as well. So these are the steps of kind of building a model. And you asked about 2020, and that's a great question because we launched the Emerging Markets model on December 1st of 2019. So, okay, it's launched, it's live now, it's trading. And then in January 18th, I think we started getting news about a virus spreading in China and the market started tumbling. And so it was a very interesting year right off the gate. It was a very real stress test for a new strategy. And I think the strategy did really well, did what it was expected to do. We were able to finish the year with a 9% outperformance over MSCI emerging markets. The market responded well to the volatility. It was able to rebalance during extreme times in the right way and actually went into a stop loss at the right time. So it was a good year to test it to test the theories behind it. And although we expect the model to trade four to six times a year on a quarterly basis based on those signals, it kind of traded more like seven, eight times during that year. So that was kind of an extreme example. So now we're implementing that same approach to China Dynamic. Soon we're going to have, we're launching the China Dynamic model and we're also expanding our suite to other ideas in emerging markets, more granular exposure to emerging markets, ESG emerging markets, we'll see where we go. Also feedback, we're definitely seeking feedback from advisors and everybody we speak to. But the goal is to expand our solution kit to advisors. So how do investors or advisors actually invest in these models? Like, how do you actually deliver models to people's portfolios? What's the best channel for that today? So there are a few approaches. Folks like choice. And so we've tried to build our model platform with a few options. One 
we found that there are a number of folks that are do-it-yourselfers that would just like to have the information they need, but really want to implement the models on their own. And to do that, investors can sign up on our website. We have a section of our website dedicated to portfolios. And once they log in, they can sign up for alerts. So when we're rebalancing the models, and this goes back to my comment on transparency, we'll send you an email and tell you, here are the weights, here are the things that we're investing in, and here's the rationale for why these changes occur. So we call that model delivery. And that's just something that you can do if you're an investor that's focused on really doing things yourself. There are other investors that want to have our models embedded in their separately managed account platform. So financial advisors use SMA. So we're on a number of different platforms where these models are accessible and they can have the platform that they utilize to manage their client money actually implement the changes that we propose directly. And then there are certain larger relationships, folks that use, say, the wirehouses, where we can actually manage those separately managed accounts on their behalf. We work very closely with a technology partner that actually has pipes built in to all the major custodial platforms and large institutions. So to the extent that somebody wants us to actually manage their separately managed accounts, their client assets, we have that capability as well. So it really comes down to the degree to which you want us to be involved. And if you want us to not be very involved, you can just receive the information and do with it what you like. We'd like you to invest in our ETFs and follow our model explicitly. But what we're finding is that some people want to be able to customize what we do as well. So that then becomes an option. And on the other hand, people that want to do exactly what we're saying will outsource that responsibility to us, whether through a platform or through a technology partner. If I can add, there was one thing I wanted to share, which I think is really interesting, and Anthony's being so modest, but I think it's worth mentioning. So earlier in my career, when I managed multi-asset strategies, target date strategies, we did a ton of research on major asset categories. So things like equities and fixed income. And if you think about it, if you're looking at US equities, there's almost 100 years of data on the S&P 500. If you're looking at core bonds, you can go back to the 70s and get really good data on fixed income, including credit. So not just government, but credit as well. And you can get government bond data going back 100 years as well. If you think about China, it's a little different. I mean, the Chinese stock market, despite its current size, really didn't get started until the mid 90s. So I think what makes us particularly well-suited and why we're so specialized in this category is that we have information and data and access and the ability to interpret it really like no other firm, in my opinion, because we really are that specialized in this category. So I just want to emphasize that we talk about these models in a way as if, oh, well, next week we're going to launch another model. These take a tremendous amount of time and energy and thought to build and a lot of data has to be accessed to do a good job with it. And so we're very focused on those things. And in a way, that makes all the difference in the world. And I would just encourage listeners that if you are going to outsource the management of all or a portion of your portfolio, you really have to make sure that you trust the manager on the other side. And that's why I think that we're particularly well-suited in the emerging market in China space, because that's all we do. 
to your point, I mean, you guys have an impressive suite of products in terms of getting China exposure and the China thematics. So I think 2020 was an impressive year for you guys. You, you hit record AUM levels and you probably had a steady pace of product launches. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? And I'd love to take that and also segue into talking more about the thematics and your thematic approach, especially around your ETFs. I'll give a little kind of overview of 2020 at the firm level, but you're absolutely right. It started off as a good year. The first quarter of 2020 for the firm was good because trade tensions were calming down a bit and we saw very strong performance right up until the time that we entered kind of into this pandemic phase and we definitely saw drawdowns. But interesting enough, because we are so thematic as a firm, COVID and the pandemic really accelerated many of the themes that we've been focused on. So not only did we see a positive catalyst, performance catalyst from just a reduction in some of the headlines around the trade war, but we also saw many of our themes come to life in real time, internet and e-commerce. I mean, we know this from our U.S. experience, but the Chinese consumer is in many ways more advanced than the U.S. consumer in terms of all things online. So many of the things that we had identified as investment opportunities did exceptionally well in 2020. In fact, according to Investors Business Daily, four of the 10 best performing funds in the international space were crane shares funds, including the number one best performing strategy, which was our China clean tech strategy, K-Green. So it was really, in many ways, a year of recognition. And so a lot of investors that were thinking about China and weren't sure about China either added to their positions in 2020 or became investors for the first time. And that did help in raising firm AUM. But I'd say more importantly for us, it was continuing building our reputation as kind of the trusted manager in the China space. Because look, we don't know what performance will look like in the future. 2020 was a great year, but we know that no matter what happens in markets, we're not going to pivot away from China. Whether it's a good year, whether it's a difficult year, we're always here to kind of provide information, education, and expertise in this space. Let's touch on the themes. I mean, when I look at your product page, I see KWeb, obviously one of your biggest funds, but I love also cars, great ticker, K-A-R-S. You think about where Tesla's been and got into, and I think there's underappreciated theme of electric car innovation in manufacturing in China. So can we touch on those themes a little bit? Like Jonathan mentioned, a lot of the themes came to live in 2020, and one of them is electric vehicles. We've seen great adoption for electric vehicles, especially in Europe. China was doing well over the past couple of years, selling a million plus cars a year. But what really surprised us last year was Europe went from 500,000 vehicles per year to 1 million something, I think 180% growth. All that happened in the fourth quarter. So it feels like a lot of everything came together in that year to produce kind of an inflection point for clean tech, electric vehicles, even healthcare, also add to that, you have 5G, which was in the process of expanding and the internet story too, which started a couple of years ago and is expected to continue for many years to come. 
so based on the th- these like when you talk about themes in China, it's we don't know where to start, which one is better. We get the question if you have to pick one fund, which one would you pick? And this is really like the toughest question for me. On the healthcare side, you're talking about like 1.4 billion people getting access to healthcare a couple of years ago. You're talking about the blooming biotechnology industry that is now going global and generating a lot of growth. Telemedicine and pharmaceutical retail is also a big industry in China supported by the government. Medical devices have gone global thanks to COVID as more countries needed ventilators and, and patient monitoring and life support equipment. I don't know if you remember when China built hospitals, two hospitals in 10 days in Wuhan. So a lot of these companies help build these, help supply them with equipment. So this is the healthcare. And then 5G, we're starting in the very beginning of that. We're expected to reach penetration in China, a 60% penetration, I think, next year. So that's the highest globally. And that means more towers, more infrastructure, more ships, more equipment to get ready for the 5G era. And even when the 5G is going to pick up, that's going to open up a lot of doors with it in terms of data speed and what you can do with that. So when it comes to innovation in China, I think the sky is the limit. And whatever industries we're talking about today, I can guarantee you in the next two, three years, we'll be talking about more industries. Last year, we started hearing about something called esports, where stadium-sized audience was like audience was filling stadiums to watch people play videos way more audience than nfl and nba combined we're starting now telemedicine this year is kind of picking up so that's the beauty of technology that it just keeps evolving and creating new industries a lot of different themes what about macro themes so recent weeks we've seen a lot of chatter about weakening us dollar increased inflation concerns and generally like the rise of the Chinese yuan. I know people have been talking about that for a decade now, decade plus, but like, how do you view maybe China as an inflation hedge or how do you view that? Well, China over the past year or two has been kind of an island on its own because early on it had COVID under control and things went back to normal basically back in June or July. And it kind of picked up and it was the only economy that kind of registered a positive growth last year, plus 2%, expected to do plus 9% this year. And they did all that with very limited stimulus. If you look at the stimulus generated in the US and Europe, when you use stimulus, that's kind of borrowing growth from the future. And China did it with the lowest, I think, in terms of fiscal and monetary. So they are very well positioned to continue to grow and not to suffer as much from what happened over the past year, especially compared to the rest of the world. So the biggest fear now is the conversation in China now is normalization. So despite this little stimulus they did and some of the subsidies they extended on the EV and clean tech side, analysts are kind of expecting China to back off a little bit. But we know from experience and from history that they are very thoughtful on how to do it and how to do it in a way that it doesn't rattle markets and it doesn't stifle growth. So that's with regards to China. And you have all these themes that we just mentioned. These are growing despite what happens globally. If oil goes up a little bit or U.S. inflation picks up, people just do not stop seeking help in hospitals or buying medication or doing telemedicine. These things are going to continue no matter what. So 
you have a good macro backdrop and very strong themes in China. So globally now, I think the whole story is centering around the U.S. and inflation and rising rates. And I think inflation expectation is kind of rising a little bit. And it was kind of expected for this period of the year because now you're going off a very low base last year. If you remember last year, we were kind of in a lockdown, inflation kind of tumbled. And now we're coming into the new year with some optimism on the vaccine and high savings. And people just want to go out and spend and add to that a little bit of stimulus, people getting checks, which help provide a balance to like retail sales. So inflation is going to be a little bit on the higher side. So when you combine the two, inflation on the higher side and a very low base, we may see prints like 3 or 3.5% next couple of months. And that's kind of scaring the markets a little bit. But many agree that this is just a bump. This is not lasting. It's not going to be a long-term thing. It's just a small bounce. And then we go back to normal inflation. It's been communicated uh, very well by the Fed and by many asset managers and economists. They agree on that point. So it kind of makes sense a little bit for the 10-year rate to adjust higher than the 0.5% where it was before because of the vaccine optimism and we're kind of opening up but we don't think it's going to be as high as it is today. But for the next two months, we may see some kind of volatility. And then you add to that some regulation in China and a little bit of US-China stuff. So there's always something to keep investors on their toes. If I could add just one of the things to think about that's really interesting is kind of the longer-term behavior of currencies. And one easy way to look at it is through like the trade-weighted dollar. And from the mid-90s to right around when the tech bubble burst, the dollar was strengthening significantly. So that's call it a seven-year to 10-year period of dollar strength. And then we saw dollar weakness from that point on to about call it 2010, 2011. So another 10-year period. And now from call it 2011 to 2020, we saw dollar strength again, but it's starting to move in the other direction. So from a broad macro standpoint, it might be a little bit too early to call the dollar dead. We're probably a year, year and a half into a weakening dollar cycle, especially considering that these are things that can take place over the course of a decade, certainly seven to 10 years. So we may be entering a weakening dollar cycle, broadly speaking. But with respect to China, what's really interesting is really looking at the Chinese bond market. I mentioned earlier that it's the second largest bond market in the world. But think about this. It's one of the few bond markets that still has a normalized yield curve. One-year yields in China are 2.5%, the 10 years at 3 and a quarter, and the long ends, 375. So if you're looking for yield, China's market is large and liquid and certainly an interesting place to go. And historically, what's kept people out of the Chinese bond market is one, lack of access, but that's all changed. And crane shares is certainly a part of democratizing the Chinese bond market, but also concerns about the RMB. And now that the RMB has started to strengthen against the dollar, and it is possible that you enter a prolonged period of dollar weakness, there's really been an increase in interest in the Chinese fixed income space. And I do believe, much like what we saw with equity inclusion happening over a prolonged period of time, we're starting to see conversations about bond inclusion and the Chinese bond market being added to indexes. And it's happening on a much faster timeline than what we saw with equities. And what's fascinating is that there's so many vectors to play 
these themes and position your portfolio, especially with the suite of products you've built. I'm looking here at Screener on the Logically platform, and I see interesting inflows, especially with KWeb this past year. I mean, just year to date, we're barely out of the first quarter, and you've hit $4 billion in KWeb and picked up, I guess, close to $400 million. So congrats on that and wishing you the best for continued success. This has been fascinating, a great tour of the Chinese markets and how you can invest via grain shares. Any parting words? Just wanted to thank the listeners here and certainly thank you for having us on. It's a real treat to be able to talk about what I think are some of the most exciting themes in the marketplace and ways to really capitalize on them. So thanks for that. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.